0: Hi, you're listening to the Media Intelligence Explained podcast. I'm Vlad, one of the hosts, and with me is Alicia. Hi, Alicia.
1: Hi, Vlado. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. A long time now. see. Actually, we saw each other in Dublin.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it seems like so long ago, though.
0: Absolutely. I like all these follow-ups <laughs> and... <laughs> It was a crazy event. It's kind of mandatory for us to say a few words about that event. So you were uh, not only a panelist, you were like a a speaker. And I listened to your session. It was very interesting. You spoke for uh, computer games and how they can be utilized as... uh, advertising uh, channels uh, it was very interesting for me so I would like to congratulate you on that. You were not alone you were with a colleague of yours I believe or uh, someone who you know which was the most interesting session in the whole event which was I know interesting and useful for you.
1: I really liked the sessions that you provided like the, really? <laughs> this, yeah so it was like the one that you have like two guests you had Viet
0: and, and Mohan. Mohan Bodhi. yeah
1: and they were talking about the future of, of technology and where are we going and <laughs> like media in context of media intelligence. Yeah. and i really like that and i think we should get them both on the podcast
0: <laughs> absolutely and in a way repeat this and be, we will have more time but yeah like people are listening to us right now and they say oh this too like they they say <laughs> really nice things to each other like Vladimir liked the Alicia session and vice versa uh-huh. but yeah if we exclude mine <laughs> 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 uh, which was the other one which was very interesting for you for me it was a session about storytelling it was really great uh, from uh, from Media HQ I really like that it was done in a very, very attractive way. So yeah, if all of this uh, is published online uh, s- after some time, like we strongly encourage our listeners to watch that presentation. But going back to you, do you think that some other presentation lecture was really yeah, interesting and useful really for you? I really
1: the one about the future of radio. And how it's going to change how we consume the radio. And there was like this really... This something that I, that really struck with me was the person who was like the panelist. He talked about that being in the car is actually your private time. And that's the time when you can choose whatever you listen to. And a lot of people are choosing the radio. So and that car designers are forgetting about that and they are, don't, are not putting the radio in like this old futuristic cars that you know have all this <laughs> like yeah,
0: yeah, displays
1: yeah. and all that and, and they're like okay where's the radio everyone listens <laughs> to the radio and I think yeah the only time when I listen to the radio is actually in the car but he also talked about, talk about how podcasts are you know the yeah. big competition for, for the radio so I wonder wonder that, is, that was a really nice presentation because I haven't really think about that that you know this is kind of like we are talking like how newspapers are going out of business right but I haven't thought about the radio and yeah the fact that you most listen to it when you commute
0: yeah by the way it's the same with podcasting especially long-form podcasts like this one we are actually in huge competition with a lot of different distractions for the time of our listeners Uh, so yeah uh, actually driving commuting this is the time where When people have time for listening to a podcast or a radio or a radio show or news, whatever. So yeah, this is a really big competition. And I can confirm this uh, from the statistics of this podcast and uh, other podcasts uh, in which I participate. Usually when people do not commute, these are like the summer months, the vacation months. uh, Listeners drop significantly, like the audience does not disappear, but it's significantly less compared to the winter months or the early summer months. Months. So, early spring months, sorry. Um, so, yeah, if it's raining, it's good time for podcasting because, like, people are in the metro, people are in their cars traveling uh, for work, and yeah, they would like to spend some time uh, with the podcast. And saying so much the word podcast, we would really like to say thank you to uh, Sofia Karakeva from Data Scouting. She's uh, helping us by producing this podcast and many, many other things. <laughs> like, the huge overhead this podcast mm-hmm. is for uh, the whole Community, but yeah, thank you, Sophia, and we would like to say thank you to Identrix, the company which supports this podcast. It's really strange for me to promote Identrix because I work for Identrix, but yeah, still, we would like to say this. And saying all of that, uh, we we have a few announcements. And um, Alicia, it's your turn to take the word and say the great announcements. Some of them are really, really exciting.
1: So we have to come back to the. World Media Intelligence Congress in Dublin for a minute because we wanted to announce that Fibes is constantly growing. In just in the Congress we welcomed 11 new members to, the, to our community. That was quite a lot. I didn't expect so many.
0: Yeah, last uh, time it was like 2 and suddenly 11. <laughs> yeah. Great job, guys. <laughs>
1: yeah, the procedure was uh, really simplified so it's like much simpler and like friendlier to join our community. So if you're wondering how to do that, check out the uh, information information on the FIBEP website. And we can wait for you to become a new member and see you at the next conference.
0: Yeah, very few observations from me for the new members. They were not only tech companies. So uh, it was really nice to see media intelligence organizations, MMOs, etc. joining. But again, uh, there were a lot of tech companies. So really uh, the whole media intelligence ecosystem, I'm really glad that uh, this whole initiative uh, works out. And a lot of companies are recognizing feedback as someone who represents them. And Uh, a great place to learn about stuff and do networking and make partners, friends, etc. So it's really nice to go to an event and see that there are 11 new members. Like, this yeah. is amazing.
1: And the yeah. new members were also making the presentation. So they are like already an active part of the community. So that's also great to see. As yeah. You know, yeah. you, if you're a new member, there's nothing stopping you. If you have something you want to talk about, we, we can provide you the space.
0: Absolutely. Now, this is announcement number one. I'll count them for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: and so the next announcement actually for them because the Dublin uh, Congress was the last live event that's going to happen this year. But next year, we actually have announced three more events the first one will be the Copyright uh, Day that will happen in March in Prague. And Newton Media will be a sponsor of that event. Then we will have probably in April the Tech Day and it will happen in Rome. So can yeah. wait to that. And there will be next year the new like 2023 World Media Intelligence Congress.
0: The big and event. it
1: will happen in mid-October. And this time we are going to Singapore are yeah. you going to Singapore for that?
0: Obviously, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about your flying issue? You mean my aerophobia or the challenges to put the airplane belt?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I was thinking about like, you know, 13 hours in a plane.
0: Well, I've never been to Singapore and I know that it's, first of all, it's extremely interesting location. Mm-hmm. Then... Everybody knows that it's a great uh, business place and there are a lot of business opportunities. So it will be shame if, in a way, I miss that. So for sure, I will travel to Singapore and I will <laughs> fight with my airplane traveling issues. Thank you for exposing them to
1: people. Well, sorry, we can no, cut that. Worry.
0: No, we're we totally not going to cut that. And when people see me, they will say, oh, Vlado, you're so brave, you travel. So,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah you're our hero. Let's <laughs> talk about uh, data collection and enrichment services. These are the three events I'm really, really looking forward for the Tech Day in April. It will be a great event in a way following up and building on top of the Tech Day, which was in Athens. What I know right now is that it will be a little bit more techy compared to the previous events. And I'm really, really hoping that we will be able to attract more CTOs, developers, engineers, uh, machine learning experts, data scientists, etc. Not the, let's say, the usual crowd of business thinking but people, but in a way to create an event which is really plausible and interesting for the people who are more on the development side and on the operational side. Like an event for them to share their knowledge, learn from each other. Really looking forward to going again to Rome in April. And before actually starting the podcast, we would like to announce several more initiatives. In October we have uh, two events which are uh, scheduled already. Uh, We will have on a webinar hosted by Joseline Marquez from InfoMedia. Uh, she is also, by the way, a member of the FIBEP Tech Advisory Commission. Yay! Yeah, <laughs> Tech Commission,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a huge commission. It's like uh, the United Nations of tech people in, <laughs> uh, in FIBEP. Uh, and she will have us a guest Anders Buch, or Butch, I'm sorry, from uh, Media Catch, and they will talk about visual media intelligence, uh, which is uh, a new approach to AI-based exposure catches, which is, it's a really catchy title of <laughs> (laughs) of that event, but we are really looking forward for that event to happen. And the other one is that FIBEP is partnering with ICCO, Global Summit in Dubai, which will happen in mid-October, which is 12th and 13th of October. And FIBEP will be represented by the Media Intelligence Business Ecosystem Commissioners for North America, Johannesburg and Sarah Nahawi, and they will introduce uh, the ecosystem. So Mm -hmm. in a way, FIBEP will start to be the ambassadors of our industry to other type of events which is great like this is this is what we expect from fibep right
1: and if you want to hear more about the media intelligence ecosystem, come back to our episode with Romina.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. This is a shameless plug. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was a great episode. Uh, learn more and see how all of this works and what are the different type of players. If you're new into the media intelligence. Saying all of that, <laughs> we'll move to the second section of our podcast, uh, the so-called uh, industry news of the month. We have two news, uh, or at least I recognize two news, which I would like to uh, discuss with you, Alicia. The first one is the troubles which Facebook has with its business model, (laughs) which is really, uh, actually, it's a huge news. A lot of people will ask, okay, uh, first of all, what's going on with Facebook? And second, how does this, what's the relationship with the media intelligence uh, business? And yeah, let's discuss that. Let's explain that. Quick background for the Past uh, several quarters, the value of the Facebook stock is declining. Mm-hmm. And this is a trend. We can say that it's a long term stable trend, like Facebook is losing value. It's losing value for uh, its investors and obviously there is some sort of problem. For sure, we discussed Facebook and all of their, uh, how to say, data protection issues, the biases of their algorithms, their AI scandals like Cambridge Analytica, foreign governments using Facebook to change elections in different countries and so on and so on. For several years, almost every week, there was a huge scandal regarding Facebook. But right now, what we see, and by the way, I am using an article from CNBC as the fundament for this reaction, which we will do right now with Alicia. What we see is that Meta is training at its lowest since early 2019. Like this is three, since three years ago, even more. So that's really bad. And by the way, they are one of the worst performance this year in the standards and Poor's uh, 500, uh, which is again, not really nice place to be if you're Facebook. And other things which are happening, a lot of people are leaving Facebook. They're not yeah. living in like troves, but for the first time, Facebook started to lose users. And this is not something new. We, For a very long period of time, we know that young people, uh, they don't like Facebook. They choose different type of uh, social platforms and I don't know, maybe they're better designed for them. But yeah, young people don't use Facebook uh, that much because for sure there are pe- young people who are using it. Facebook too, but yeah, it's not their first choice. There are other places like TikTok or Snapchat, things like this, which are very popular among young people. Plus, everybody knows that Apple updated their policy for uh, data sharing, especially for uh, iOS, iPhone. And uh, we know that uh, this is the most uh, popular uh, mobile device in the US among young people. So Facebook uh, started to lose access to a lot of data That's another problem which is happening. And finally, Laura Martin, she's an analyst from Needham, said that she actually right now, uh, she's not sure uh, that there is a core business that works anymore at Facebook, which is really, really tough thing to say. (laughs) And you don't want to be in Facebook if your core business is, you know, very shaken. So this is the context. This is what is happening with Facebook right now. And... I would like to share my opinion how this will, what will be the repercussions for the media intelligence business. By the way, people, this is my personal opinion. This is not the guaranteed future, but I'm sure that maybe this is interesting for you. And Alicia, I will ask for your comment in a second, and I will ask for your, how to say, prediction about how this will affect us, uh, the media intelligence uh, companies. But there are several possible things which will happen. Like, first of all, in long term, a lot of data will disappear from facebook like people actually not data content yeah and after that data will disappear from facebook um this channel which right now is considered one of the most important media intelligence channel will slowly lose its significance because people won't be there there won't be that much conversation i'm quite sure about that i cannot say when but yeah, that, that's a trend. So we, we need, as an industry, still, like we're not going to stop monitoring Facebook, but the value of uh, communication there will slowly change. That's one thing. Uh, another thing uh, that will happen, and this is really a wild prediction from my side, that maybe, but just maybe, Facebook will, when they will be forced to look for a new types of revenue streams. Maybe they will adopt uh, a new policy similar to the Twitters where they sell anonymous data. Or uh, they sell some of the public uh, data and content which uh, happens on their services. Like everybody who does right now uh, media intelligence knows that Facebook is extremely restrictive. After the Cambridge Analytica scandal, they changed completely from very, very open and yeah, unprotecting uh, the data of its users. They moved to completely opposite direction but maybe in the search of new revenue streams they will be more open to create uh, an API which can be uh, utilized by media intelligence companies so that's another thing and obviously the third thing uh, which they will invest more are new types of media, new new, new types of socializing. They recognized uh, the metaverse as uh, their medium. They're betting on the metaverse. And for sure, we will have a lot of more coming for the metaverse particularly. But the problem is that this bet from Facebook for now is not paying off. Like they invested a lot of money. They lost a lot of money from the metaverse. And still, we don't see these huge adoptions and huge switches from businesses and users to using the metaverse. Uh, Still, a lot of people are questioning what is the metaverse so this is something new and it won't happen soon but they will continue investing into the metaverse which could lead to i don't know to better development of the metaverse and possible adoption because at the end this is facebook this is a very influential tech company and maybe they could succeed so these are my three predictions alicia what is your comment on this
1: i'm not as a young person as as i might look like but um i think facebook is actually losing like the younger generation and it's becoming a platform for you know for your mom and for your aunt and you don't want to be at the same platform that your parents are in right and they are they, you don't want to share anything when your mom yeah. can comment that oh you look so <laughs>
0: it's s- a platform for, a, yeah. for the elder millennials but... <laughs> yeah i
1: think so it's it's just what's happening, and. Uh, Also a big problem with Facebook right now is that the platform is almost Unusable for so I would like to see the updates of fan pages that I follow, for example. But uh, I yeah. just cannot see that. I only see like random stuff that Facebook is pushing to me, and it's like, and a lot of them are, for example, videos that I don't want to see, and they are like playing automatically. And Facebook is almost unusable for me. I think I uh, I visited like once a week for something like that to check what, what if the, if something someone is m- throwing a party and they make like you know an event on. Facebook so you can see the updates for the but I think that's the only thing that I use Facebook right now and or to check if my if the restaurant I I want to go and is still open or something (laughs) like that it's not any longer like a platform when you can share ideas or share your stuff because also the algorithm is like really if you don't paying for views you will not see any engagement to your content so it's like really hard so like people like artists creators they're going out of facebook so the only people who will stay there are probably the older millennials like i said who will still like comment on each other's like you know vacation photos and all of that but like a lot of younger people they are looking for something like you know more like hip or more like you know exciting and that's something they think facebook missed They, they they like stayed with with the same like platform that they have like 10 years ago yeah. didn't really update it and you know it's no longer relevant
0: which are the hip platforms right now it's like <laughs> if it's not facebook what do you use which platform is yours
1: what i use yeah uh, so uh, please don't look for me i'm on tiktok and i'm also i really like to think of myself as a content creator so i actually create a, a lot of platforms uh, but my favorite one is tiktok and tiktok is actually a great platform if you are looking for organic uh, like exposure and uh, that's something that. I used to use Instagram for a long time, but Instagram is a part of Meta and it's have the same problem that Facebook. If you're not paying to be advertised, the Instagram will hide your content even from the people that follows you. Yeah. So yeah. it's like your impressions are like non-existent. And on TikTok, you actually are being pushed to the people who are not following you. So it's yeah. really easy to discover new people, new content, new new creators. You know, TikTok is also really good with the trends and it's really easy to jump on on the trend and uh, entry level is really low so everyone can so if you're posting on Facebook you have to write a post right you gotta be kind of good at writing if you are making a post on Instagram you gotta have a good photo that will you know bring, bring someone's attention but on TikTok you can just jump on a famous trend and the platform will push your content I don't really like there's a lot of children on this platform but it's like really easy for someone who's really young who have no like technical knowledge who have like no you know they don't have a camera they don't have they just have their phone and they can create funny stuff and share them on the yeah. internet <laughs> and I really like that that's that's a good side of TikTok there's also a bad side of TikTok but we're not talking about we're talking about which platform is hip right now so that's sure, I think sure, sure. TikTok is yeah. like the
0: and I would biggest. like to remind to our audience that definitely we'll record an episode for TikTok We'll share our opinion and all the worries which we have <laughs> because TikTok is at the end a Chinese company. So that's something different <laughs> and we need to talk about it. Okay, moving on. Um, this was industry announcement number one. Industry mm-hmm. announcement number two, all these rich uh, IT companies in mm-hmm. US are doing <laughs> cost cutting. And this is really interesting to see because Apple announced uh, hiring freezes, uh, Google announced cost cuttings. They started to in a way kill whole products again and certain small divisions. Facebook, of course, we mentioned that their stock and their business model is threatened. So they, they have problems too and they are trying to cut their costs. So all these companies announced that but I'm going to talk about Google because this is uh, very relevant to to this podcast on this industry. And um, I, again, I linked uh, an article to CNBC which mm-hmm. is uh, called Google CEO Pichai tells them Employees not to equate fun with money in heated all-hands meeting. Like this all-hand mm-hmm. meeting, uh, right now they're like press conferences. And yeah. for sure they know that this meeting will leak. But yeah, it's very interesting to read about this type of corporate events uh, which are intended for internal use, but kind of everybody knows that um, this will leak and media will pick up uh, the story and people like us uh, will analyze what's going on and how this will affect uh, other businesses. Uh, Long story short, uh, yeah, Google announced that (laughs) they will cut some of the, how to say, the the job perks which they provide for their employees like uh, huge uh, holiday parties, uh, some merch, etc. And they will try to optimize their processes in order to decrease their time to market. This created a huge storm within uh, Google because maybe this is the culture they created which is uh, very how to say extremely safe uh, for uh, everyone in terms of uh, job safety because we know for the past several years it was extremely hard to find employees and suddenly right now these companies need to change that policy and uh, they change their narrative from okay come work for us and we're the best place for creativity etc and there they started to talk about efficiency like uh, all of these companies, they say we have enough talent, and our goal is to increase the productivity with twenty percent, thirty percent. And people started to ask, "What does this mean? Are we going to cut twenty percent of the jobs, or do what?" And uh, on these all hands meetings, uh, they started to put pressure on uh, CEOs to yeah answer that. So that's the interesting part to observe. But okay, that's the content, uh, the context. How this will affect the media intelligence industry? My my take on this is that again, uh, companies like Google. Yeah, they will decrease their costs, but they for sure will increase prices for the services which they provide. For me, that's inevitable with this huge global inflation, the recession, which is knocking on the door and the huge reliance of companies, startups and everyone on Google services like Gmail, Google Meet, etc, but also on services on Google Cloud and uh, Amazon web services and Microsoft uh, Azure services, all of this will, my personal opinion and fear is that the, the prices for this will skyrocket and this will affect uh, the price of tech services within the media intelligence ecosystem because collecting data, storing data, processing data, all of this right now happens and like everybody says, everybody, everything should be happening in the cloud. Yeah, it's very convenient, it's very centralized. This is the way uh, serious companies uh, process data, but uh, you're extremely re- reliant on, uh, not say the mer- but on the success and the efficiency of uh, these big tech giants. And uh, when uh, they need money, for sure, they will do some optimization on their end. But at the end, uh, inflation is inflation and uh, they will increase prices, uh, which uh, maybe will translate in higher prices within the media intelligence ecosystem. So um, this is something we all the tech companies, but not only tech companies will be affected. Alicia, what do you think about this?
1: Even like not only the tech companies, but also like media monitoring companies are using Google Tech. For example, they are using the uh, automatic speech recognition or uh, Google Translate even for to to do that daily job, right? That would, you know, you have to fix your prices to make sure that, okay you are still getting money on it. But what about your clients who are also facing uh, the inflation? So it might be actually we are starting with Google, but then we might, okay, so I have to increase price in my media monitoring organization. And then my clients are like, okay, maybe I I, I don't really need that service. Maybe Uh, it's not uh, crucial uh. for me right now. So maybe I will just cut on that. So, you know, we we might be all losing money at the end of that.
0: It will be interesting time. So yeah.
1: Interesting time is like a really nice way to put
0: it. It's a challenge and it's something uh, we need to pay attention to. And that's why we put this news within our selection of important industry news. Because on the first glance, this is not related to what we do, but at the end it is so people companies which deeply rely on services provided by the big tech companies they should uh, pay attention and i don't know maybe a hybrid or managed infrastructure will become more fashionable again mm-hmm. with all the risks and inconveniences but yeah at the end price and cash will be king <laughs> next years so yeah we should uh, prepare for that Saying all of that, I think because we reached like 30 minutes for the first part, it is time to move to the second part of our podcast where we will talk about ethical AI. We already recorded the interview with uh, Rania. It is a great interview. At the end, it was a little bit longer, so we split it in two and right now you will have the pleasure to listen to the first part of that interview. It will be like a 40 minutes interview, so imagine Mm -hmm. how long was the the original interview so yeah stay with us and learn more about what is actually AI what is ethical AI and uh, this will be just the first part of that interview. Happy listening.
1: So hello, today we have Rania Vazir with us. We will be talking about ethical AI, one of the most, I think, anticipated episodes that a lot of you were asking us about. So yeah, we're finally doing that. And we have Rania as as an expert with us. Rania, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yes, very gladly. So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this episode. And I'm very happy that there is so much interest now in the topic of ethical AI. So let me tell you a little bit about my background and how I even ended up in this topic. I'm actually a mathematician by training. And for several years now, I've been working in the areas of social media monitoring, natural language processing. And through that, in the area of trustworthy AI. And a lot of the projects I worked on were with NGOs, an initiative called Data for Good, where a whole bunch of data scientists, machine learning experts got together and offered for free services to NGOs uh, who needed help with some kinds of uh, data projects. And while we were working on these projects, I realized that, well, there are no quality checks on AI systems or uh, data science results. So basically, it's up to me as the project lead to decide, okay, this is good enough, and then to go out and give it to uh, the NGOs. And I found this shocking, possibly because I'm a mathematician and I think you need to prove what your results are. And so I decided, well, there's no point in sitting around and being shocked about it. Let's let's try to do something about it. And this was how I ended up joining the Austrian standards. And uh, through that, I've ended up working with uh, ISO, International Standards, SENELEC, which is the European standards groups. I'm particularly active in the trustworthy AI working group. And uh, very recently, I co-founded a company called Livant AI, Whose, whose goal is actually to help uh, both companies or organizations who are trying to develop AI or want to take a ready product and deploy it, make sure that this AI that they're using or developing is actually trustworthy.
1: Okay, so for those of us who are like on the very basic level, can you please explain us what's the difference between the AI, so artificial intelligence, between machine learning and deep learning? What are this like, can you tell us what what does it mean? What does it mean when you say, okay, we're going to machine learn that or we're going to deep learn that?
0: By the way, I'll jump in here because we're going to discuss ethical and AI. And (laughs) me and Alicia, we said, okay, if you're going to have a conversation for ethical AI, in a way, we should be sure that uh, the audience understands uh, our view about what AI is and uh, what ethical is. (laughs) So (laughs) that's why in the beginning, we'll have this really basic conversation, but in a way important for the the whole topic. Back to the AI. Personally, I really hate AI as a term. (laughs) I prefer uh, educated machines uh, and a lot of people call it machine learning, deep learning, etc. Yeah, let's try to explain all of this. Like, what is the AI right now?
2: Yes, well, that's a great question because people start talking about it usually and they mean different things. So... For me, AI is actually a very broad term. If if we draw circles, this is the biggest circle. And uh, what falls under AI can actually be very traditional software, things where you've already programmed step by step and told the machine how to follow through a particular procedure. And the only reason it would get called AI is because the output is something that to us looks like, wow, that's intelligent. And in fact, in the uh, international community, such things do exist and they are called AI. Other terms for them would be expert systems or heuristic systems. What has happened in, let's say, in the last two decades has been an explosion in something, another way of doing AI or another way of making computer systems that seem intelligent to us. And this, this goes under the broad heading of machine learning. Now, the way I see machine learning is that what you have is a system, you're still telling it what you want it to do, you're still giving it the goal, but instead of giving it step by step instructions on how to arrive at that goal, what you're doing is telling it This is how you can learn a pattern. Now I'm going to give you lots of data, learn the pattern in order to get to the goal on your own. And so while this is a different way of making the machine arrive at the goal, I think it's very important that we remember it's still coded, we've still told it the goal, and there is still software in in the sense of algorithms, step-by-step instructions. It's just that the instructions now are about how do I find a pattern instead of how do I arrive at this destination? And so this then goes into the broad category of machine learning. And the other thing to remember is when you're talking about finding patterns, you're talking statistics. And when you're talking statistics, this means that Things have probabilities of happening. There is a probability that this pattern is the correct one and this is how you will correctly arrive at your destination. There's also a non-zero probability that you're going to get it wrong. So when we talk about machine learning, we should keep this at the back of our heads, that we've created these systems that arrive at destinations that have maybe even a very high probability of being correct, but it's inherent in their sort of statistical being that there's also a chance that they're wrong. And then you narrow the uh, category some more. Inside the category of machine learning, there is one particular way of detecting patterns, and this is deep learning. And deep learning has become incredibly popular in, let's say, in the last 10 years because our computational power has increased and deep learning really has benefited from this increased computational power because it allows us to use much, much more data. So I hope this has given sort of a broad view.
0: I would like to add something. From my point of view, there are, let's call it, two types of uh, artificial intelligence. And most of the approaches which we currently described, and by the way, running a great um, explanation of uh, machine learning, deep learning, and expert systems, right now they lead to the so-called uh, narrow artificial intelligence, which means that we train the machines to solve one small particular problem the same model the same machine is completely incapable to do anything else compared to yeah to the the reason why it was created and right now the holy grail of uh, AI is to create uh, general artificial intelligence and right now there are a lot of people working in that field but I will discuss that later. I will go back a little bit uh, to say a few words about the three different approaches. Uh, The first one expert systems Uh, this used to be the let's say let's call it the first AI and it's called an expert system because it needs a lot of expert to write rules. So it was a really good system because in a way it behaves very it's very predictable because usually the experts write very good rules but the problem is that even the best experts they cannot write the perfect rules so they skip some of the knowledge etc so that's the reason And, and another problem with the expert systems is that they're expensive because you need these people thinking about in a way everything and writing the perfect rules. <laughs> so for practical perspective, it was slow and expensive, but it was correct. So and then Arania explained about uh, the machine learning. The Machine learning in a way solves all of this because we don't need rules. We don't need people who will write explicit rules in order to create the expert systems, but we need a lot of training data plus we need data scientists who will in a way explain the features of the training data to the machines in order to the machine to work with that data. So this was, again, it was a productivity boost. The output was good enough and uh, cost to benefit, it was better. But I believe the quality is not that good compared to uh, the expert systems. And then we have deep learning. Deep learning is way better compared to machine learning because you don't need to explain any features. But the problem with deep learning is that you need enormous amount of data to train it. And right now, because I'm speaking here from the position of practitioner, someone who is usually task with the goal to automate something or to solve a problem, the biggest problem is not to find a data scientist or an algorithm, etc. The biggest problem is to have the training data because for simple tasks like document classification, you need literally thousands of examples the way Rania explained them, but thousands of examples in order to do a problem like this. Sometimes it's like 2000 different articles per taxon. And imagine if you have a taxonomy of, let's say, 50 taxons, so you need enormous amount of data. And this is just for the beginning. After that, you have like different strategies in order to improve this. But yeah, the holy grail here is, if I go back to the beginning of my little uh, interruption here, is on the general artificial intelligence. And my question for Rania is, Rania, do you think that machine learning and deep learning from that perspective could be considered artificial intelligence or the only proper AI is the general? artificial intelligence, which still is a little bit science fiction.
2: Okay, I'm going to come out and be very biased here because there is sort of a divide even in the scientific community and fundamentally it's become a question of belief. So I don't believe in AGI, artificial general intelligence. I may be proven wrong in 20, 30, 40 years, but more importantly, I feel like We're already having problems with our narrow AI and let's try to focus on those and fix them so that this so-called narrow AI can actually unfold all of the potential it has to be useful instead of creating new problems or exacerbating existing ones.
0: I totally agree with you. Maybe reach the point when we need to explain what ethical is and what is right. I'm not good with this. (laughs) (laughs) I studied uh, ethics and uh, psychology in school. And I know really like basic stuff, but please uh, help us with this topic.
2: Well, I'm also not good with ethics. I'm not an ethicist. I'm a mathematician. So, however, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is we should... We don't all have to be ethicists in order to worry about ethics, because this fundamentally, ethics doesn't even have to do with AI. This is how we live our lives. These are the principles that guide us when we do things. So we shouldn't exclude AI from the realm of places where we apply our ethical principles. On the other hand, Ethics are very personal, whereas AI is, is sort of this very horizontal technology which applies in very many different contexts and impacts a lot of different people. So we have to also be careful not to impose our ethics on someone else. So for me, uh, what I prefer to do is, well, we live in the EU. We have some rules on how we should live together. So let's start by applying those. We have the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Let's make sure that our systems comply with the Charter of Fundamental Rights. This is already in and of itself a very broad field. So how do you, what does it mean not to discriminate? What does it mean to protect privacy What does it mean even not to impact our social institutions, uh, to uphold democracy? All of these are broad enough categories. Let's focus on those which are already embedded in our laws and try to make sure that the systems that we are producing comply with those and keep us safe and secure, as well as complying with our basic human rights.
1: So from what I'm understanding right now, it's not so often that these rules are applied to AI. So we are just making them to do some tasks, but we don't think about them being ethical. I guess we don't think that's necessary right now.
2: I would actually make the statement even more extreme in the sense that we're not even thinking about quality. As I said, I can produce an AI system as long as there are certain fields which are heavily regulated. So the medical devices have their own regulations. In the financial and the banking sector, their own regulations. But in uh, pretty much any other sector, I can produce an AI system and tell you, basically promise you the moon from the sky, and there is no check that my system will actually do this. So let's pick an example. If I'm going to produce a software which claims to recognize your face, well, right now there is nothing that says you have to prove that it recognizes everybody's face. So if I'm not even checking the quality statements, I'm definitely not thinking about other issues such as the human rights, but even things also like security. Can this system be hacked? Can the data that is stored in it be stolen? A lot of these questions are only now being addressed. Only now people are beginning to think about them. But up until now, we haven't we haven't asked these questions.
1: Yeah, there was a story about the big story about Klaue, right? That they created an AI that was able to recognize the Uyghur mi- minority. And then it was able to contact the police that someone from this minority is basically on the run, right? So that's something even further than you said. So we created an AI which has an ethical issue in, in the very basic thing that it has to do right right exactly
2: there are very many questions actually the life cycle of an ai system is quite long and there are very many points where we could stop and say hello is this good Uh, should i be doing this could i possibly be doing it better and up until now, we've been so excited with this new technology. We've just been blindly going for it and, and just trying to see, well, can I even do it? And any idea that comes into our heads, it's more like the challenge and the excitement of, ooh, I let me try if I can put this together and produce this. But it's, it's about time that we matured and we got beyond this initial excitement, which yes, you need it to get, maybe you need it in order to gather momentum and and even bring this technology to life. But now we've got it. So let's slow down a little bit and actually think about what we're doing and think about, should I be doing this or not? Can I do it better?
0: Yeah, this is pretty much my observation and theory about what actually is going on with innovation. I'm not sure if this is usually the case, but the innovation for the past, I don't know, 10 years. So what we see is we have this big tech companies and research institutes, which are in a way tasked uh, with really hard problems to solve. Like uh, we need the AI for this, we need the AI for that. And they hire extremely talented researchers. These researchers work there and at the end, very often they release a software, they put it into production, plus they release uh, some of the software as free and open source software for everyone to study that software. The problem is that most of these people, the researchers plus the tech teams, the product owners and these companies, they're really interested in the, how to say it, the possible great effect of deploying that tool. And they presume that that software will work perfectly without any errors, without any complications. But that's never the case. And what we see is this really bad cycle where we see technical revolution, uh, then that leads to some significant uh, leap into The product development, and after that, uh, we see these chief executive officers of the tech companies going to the U.S. Senate and being burned about the effects of their products. Uh, We've seen many times when uh, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg has been called, and he uh, answered questions about Cambridge Analytica, about the algorithms of Facebook. We've seen a lot of um, whistleblowers uh, discussing how certain algorithms and AIs, in a way, destroy. The fabric of the society. And the problem is that we usually have this conversation really after the event happens. So we're not having these discussions before that. And I believe that this is what Rania said just a few moments earlier. It is really time to start thinking and in a way designing all these products ethical, like ethical by design. So not just innovate, put in production, and after that just saying, okay, what went wrong? Let's fix it later. But maybe it's time to to start uh, doing it before that. Because this is a theory I publicly communicated uh, for the past two years, I received some criticism, and I would like to discuss with Rania and and you, Alicia, this criticism. So usually when I say, okay, let's first thing and deploy later, not just focus on innovation, I receive the criticism that this policy will, and this strategy will, in a way destroy innovation? Do you think that this is the case, and by the way, do you think that innovation should happen on any cost, especially like human suffering cost?
2: Yeah, so thanks a lot for bringing this up. And this is a question I also hear very often. A lot of times I like to turn the question around in the sense, well, what do you mean by innovation? And is this product really innovative if what it's doing is actually harmful. So I think part of the problem here is we really do need to decide what do we mean by innovation? And we also need to decide who bears the risk of innovation? Because my philosophy is if you want to innovate and you want to try something new, well, that's great, but then the risk should be yours. Certainly, I don't find it very innovative if you can experiment to do whatever you want, because anyway, someone else is going to pay the price when something goes wrong. So I feel like right now we lost a little bit the vision of how do we want to innovate and what exactly does it mean to us? I will tell you, to me, innovation is a product which will be successful at the same time that it is beneficial to people. And there, I don't see any contradiction at all. By thinking in advance, what do I want my product to do, and what are the possible impacts of this product, I can create something new, something of high quality, and something that will benefit people and at the same time will minimize risks of harm whether that harm be to physical health or to the environment or to fundamental rights and when i produce something like that that to me is innovation
1: can we like take a step back for a moment and just come back to the, like, the practical uses of AI. And could you just tell us a little, like for example, give us examples of AI that was not ethical and what it was used for?
0: Rani, I can do the <laughs> <laughs> the practical point of view Be- because this is the Media Intelligence Podcast and our audience is really, usually it's interested how this technology in a way allow will allow better products or will solve mm-hmm. any real world problem. It is very important to say what are the problems which are expected from the uh, machine learning, deep learning, etc., to solve in the media intelligence world. And I will go a step back and just say that media intelligence world for the last uh, 20 years changed a lot from completely almost non-digital process where people cut with scissors newspapers and put them in folders and then show them to someone. to uh, A completely, mostly automated media monitoring where we have uh, machines which uh, monitor uh, digital web-based uh, media products and after that we have a very complex machines which allow indexing and filtering of all that data. This happened just in a few years. Another thing happened, like the whole digitalization revolution happened and we've seen explosion of news websites. That explosion led to the explosion of content. Uh, Usually before that we had like several newspapers per country i don't know maybe 30 40 a lot of local press of course but yeah right now even small countries uh, they have like thousands of media websites and these media websites generate really thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of uh, content and then we have social media <laughs> where <laughs> all of this was really nuked with a lot of more content and the social media has a lot of different versions you not only facebook but yeah we have like forums so uh, we we had and Some people still have blogs. So a lot of new content. And when that happened, the media intelligence industry was in a way, really scared because of all of that data. How are we going to process that data? How are we going to turn that data into knowledge, insights, etc.? So this was uh, the first reason where automations, let's call it that, uh, automations became popular among research and development uh, departments. Media intelligence organizations, historically, they were not technical organizations. But right now they transformed into that. Most of the media intelligence organizations, organizations they have not only tech teams they have product teams they hire data scientists they work with data collectors etc so right now there is a lot of technology in this industry the data continuously grows (laughs) and it's not just text right now we monitor video audio there are things like tiktok where i don't know where to put them so this type of social media so yeah we we had all of that and this was uh, the open way like companies was really they were really scared about how are we going to continue to produce what we were doing without in a way compromising quality or are we going to able actually to serve our customers because if we do all of this manually, maybe the cost which we will give to our customers will be unbearable for them and they will give up for us and switch to someone who is more cost effective. So these are uh, usually really most of the conversations which happen within uh, within the MMOs when we consider AI. And then the conversation about okay, uh, beyond pure automation, what was there? And then they discuss machine learning and deep learning. And they said, "Okay, maybe just maybe some of the work we are doing with people, not collecting and filtering data, but in a way, enriching that data for the purposes of the analysis that can be done by machines. So they started to build machine learning and deep learning models, which solved classical natural language processing tasks like language recognition, named entity recognition, topic classification, general sentiment analysis, and more recently, these organizations, they started to work with natural language generations in order to automate report writing or writing on abstracts like shorter version of the original documents because there are so many reasons they are interested to do that. So this is the practical case. This is why all of us, we started to invest into this. But you see, even in my story about how we got here, I never said, and we stopped and we thought about it and we started to think how all of this will be ethical. Like all of this was, let's see if it will work. Let's try, let's put it in production. And by the way, last week, me and Alicia, we were in Dublin and we visited the World Media Intelligence Congress organized by FIBEP and most of the presentations, they in a way included uh, some form of AI as default. Like this is, this is like a standard offering right now. It's not something new. It's not the bright future. It's not just research and development, etc. Most of the organizations right now consider it as a standard part of their tools, Oh, so this is not something, something, just something new. And we are on that point. So this is from practical perspective, how AI works for the media intelligence industry. But we'll talk later about the Artificial Intelligence Act, that uh, initiative uh, which comes from, the, I believe, the European Commission for regulating AI. And you already said just a few minutes earlier that one of the leading principles of, uh, in a way, evaluating AI is the possible harm AI could do to people, like real intelligence. And my question here is, it's for both of you, do you think that there are use cases where AI, when it is unethical within the media, intelli- like AI deployed into a media intelligence product, when that AI is not ethical, that this could lead to suffering from people? Because not many people are thinking in that direction, but I'm, I'm really interested to hear your input on that question.
2: Thanks for this a very uh, interesting question i first of all i do agree with you that what we face now especially in terms of the the amount of data and information that we are bombarded with on a daily basis it pushes a lot of companies particularly media companies into the arms of ai so to speak and especially from the point of view that the AI that's being used nowadays is machine learning, is about pattern detection. This is actually reasonable. Yeah, you're you're faced with lots of information. You want to find the patterns in this information. However, where I do believe that we've gone astray is that uh, just because we're automating a part of the process, it doesn't mean we should completely eliminate humans. Let's Let's not forget that patterns, even certain kinds of noise, even, even things like discrimination or prejudice, stereotypes, all of those are patterns as well. So we, if we don't have humans who are looking at the results of the AI to, to reality check them, to see does this make sense, is this a useful pattern, when we don't do this, then we are opening the door wide to a whole bunch of actually poor quality results. So what I would push for in in this area is absolutely use AI, but learn how to use it. And this puts responsibility on two sides. It puts responsibility on the developer or the provider of the system to explain exactly how it operates and to make sure that the user can make intelligent decisions about the output of the AI system. And then it puts responsibility on the user to learn how to use the product. Now. Frankly, you don't get into a car without first learning how to drive it. Uh, You don't get on the computer and even simple things like writing in a Word document, you learn this in school. All sorts of tools that we use, we first have to learn how to use them. And it's very important if we're going to use AI and it's going to be useful to us That we are put in the position to be able to use it well, to learn it, and then also to make decisions about the quality of the output.
0: But again, the question, where do you see the possible harm here in the media intelligence industry? And that that's a question for Alicia. Too. You're like a marketing and product person. So where do you feel the risk is the biggest risk to do harm? Like maybe for our listeners, if they are not in this industry, they will start thinking, okay, what's the output? What is the product of the media intelligence industry? And usually these are reports. And the people who consume these reports are PR, marketing people. And if we uh, skip the PR, but if we focus on the marketing people, they uh, pretty much use media intelligence in order to receive insights for what people need about products. And I'm sure that later when we discuss the, how to say, the, the way the unethical AI behaves, we'll speak about biases. And this is a huge problem. Like a lot of racial uh, racial biases, uh, people have. And if uh, these people move their personal biases, the people who are training the AI into the AI model, yeah, the AI will be biased too. So a lot of issues from from that perspective. So if, if we go back, where do you see the harm? Yes.
1: So talking about biases, even. Like it's really common for tech companies and tech people. So people who program AI, people who teach AIs, they are mostly men. And that's, so that can be really reflected on the AI results because they are looking from the perspective of men. And there are even, for example, when you have the like AIs that are working in medicine, they are mostly also taught on male patients. And that's why a lot of women get misdiagnosed.
0: Not diagnosed correctly.
1: So that's one of the issues that I think it's really like visible that a lot of people in tech are men. And you know, half the people that are using AI are women.
2: Yes, that's absolutely true. So in, in general, unfortunately, I could give a huge list of examples of AI systems that, that didn't do what they were supposed to uh, simple ones like in human resources where uh, people don't are not approved by the AI system a lot of times because because it's a woman or because they were wearing glasses or because uh, the, you know it's a person of color so the so the system didn't detect their emotions correctly to uh, systems that are used in policing which also tend to fail predictably on on marginalized communities uh, but i want to look a little bit at the failure of algorithms in the media and and so you have two very broad categories here where at least i am aware that algorithms uh, are used where they might actually be useful, but because they're used without thinking, uh, end up actually doing harm. And this this has to do with one, trying to control hate speech on the one hand, and two, uh, trying to control disinformation on the other. Now, in both cases, actually the intention is good. So you're trying to protect people from bullying, from hate speech, from uh, things that will put them down and harm their dignity. And since the volume of comments and posts that are made is so large, this kind of filtering through the messages, it's just not possible to be done manually. And so automation is used here to filter out the messages that could be harmful that fall into the category of hate speech. Now, however, people people used these sort of hate speech or sentiment detection algorithms without completely testing them. And only in hindsight were they tested. And it turns out that, for example, among the patterns that that these machines detect, they, they can sort of detect who wrote it or what kind of dialect the person was writing in. And lo and behold, if your dialect belongs to a marginalized community, you're more likely to have your comment falsely be accused of hate speech. And so if you've automated the whole system, your comment will get taken down. Or your comment will get flagged as hate speech and maybe brought to the attention of police and all of a sudden you're subject to surveillance. Uh, Because we should also remember that not all of these systems are put in place in democratic societies. So possibly you don't want your comments to suddenly be scrutinized by authorities. And the same thing happens with disinformation so we, we haven't completely tested our automated fake news filters and well it turns out that maybe they they work well on average, but when they fail they tend to fail particularly with your usual suspects, whether it's women, or it's the um, opposition, or a minority group that is anyway discriminated against in your society. What I want to say here is, well, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use the automation. We're flooded with stuff, so we need to do something. But we shouldn't use the automation blindly. We are still intelligent people, we have experts, Don't push them aside. Let the machine help them in their job. Do not let the machine replace them in their jobs. And I realize that this is not a simple thing to do. But just like we've been experimenting with these algorithms to see can we make them better, let's finally put some time and thought into experimenting with how do we make the machine work together with the human to make the best kind of system we
0: can. Thank you for staying with us. We really hope that this interview was really useful for you. I'm Petkov, one of the hosts, and I was with uh, Alicia Bors, who was the other host. I would like to say thanks to our producers, uh, Sofia Karkeva. And Emily Jaitler, they really helped us with all this content and we're really grateful uh, to them. And we'd like to say thank you to Mr. Anton Velev, who mastered and edited uh, this podcast. And finally, we'd like to say thanks to our marketing team. They are Anna Cenova and Oresti Patricius. Thank you, guys. And if you don't want to miss any new episodes from this podcast, it's really easy to subscribe to us. The best way is to go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and subscribe to us. Or actually, we are presented in the most all the independent and popular podcast listening apps. So just check your phone. If you want to send us feedback, uh, you can mention us on Twitter. Actually, this is the official feedback Twitter profile just mention us on our podcast or just send us an email to secretariat at Again thank you for listening to this podcast and uh, thank you for staying with us and bye bye.